Content warning. This series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. The show is brought to you by the Métis Nation of British Columbia, and jelly marketing. So my name is Denise McQuake. I am in the territory of Sequapum Ulu, more specifically Tekamloops to Sequapum. So I'm in Kamloops, BC, where Kamloops First Nations uh, members of the Shuswap Nation reside. And I have been in this territory since 1999. But I actually grew up in northern Alberta um, in a commun- on a farm outside of a community named Stony Plain, west of Edmonton. Yep. Um, and my Métis roots come from the St. Albert Mission, or what we now know as the city of St. Albert, just outside of Edmonton. That's amazing. Well, I was born in Edmonton and grew up in Spruce Grove. Oh, just okay. Nearby. There yeah. you go. That's great. So uh, when you hear the term healing, healing can mean so many different things to so many different people. What does it mean to you when you hear that word? I guess for me in my journey, and it's been a pretty long one, I immediately go to the thought of emotional and spiritual healing. Because I think that that's a piece of ourselves we tend to neglect. I think sometimes people hear healing and they think about the physical, the the recovery of the body from some kind of illness or burden of disease. But for me, it was more the spiritual and emotional side of life that created barriers to daily living in a good way. And until I actually started to address that significantly, it often manifested itself physically, Mm -hmm. right? So just being able to make that mind-body connection, for me, that's about healing. And to expand on that, what what barriers did you experience and, and how did you overcome them? Okay. So I think with hindsight being 2020, I probably spent the majority of my teens dealing with depression and anxiety. And then in my mid-20s, when I was a young mom with three small children, I started to really experience it in a really profound way. And so just even being able to get out of bed and care for my children became almost an impossible task. For the first time in my life, I started to experience what we call suicide ideation or thoughts like things would just be better if I wasn't in the world anymore. I had been open about that with my general practitioner, with my family doctor, and he'd been trying me on different medications. Back then, Prozac was the newest and greatest thing. So um, I had uh, been on a dose of Prozac and I actually got worse. And so... In my mid-20s, for the first time in my life, I found myself hospitalized in a psychiatric unit in a small rural hospital here in BC. And I spent a lot of weeks there. So 
It's funny though, when I've had these moments in my long journey with mental health, whereby experience being my best self or what we would consider recovery, that's when I can start to notice that I don't have lower back pain. I don't get as many headaches. And so it's that reminder of the mind-body connection. And so I didn't often think about that before I would say that I started to get comfortable embracing my culture, expressing myself through my indigeneity, and then that sort of holistic view of who I was started to come into play. Wow. So you're hospitalizing, you're in and out of there. What did that look like? How did you overcome that or you know, that season of your life? And, and, and what does that look like today? Oh, wow. Actually, it's a really beautiful story that I've told many times. So I was physically far away from my family of origin. So my family was still in Alberta. And so my family consisted of my husband and my children, my first husband and my children. And I was living in the Kootenai. And I had seen an ad on Shaw Cable that said that the Kootenai Region Métis Association was going to be having a meeting. And I thought, oh, maybe I can meet people that way. I'm Métis, so I'll, I'll do that. I'll go there. And I built a relationship in that community. And then that led to an employment opportunity at what was then the Tanaha Kimbasket Tribal Council. They're now known as the Tanaha Nation Council. And so I got my very sort of first job that wasn't waitressing or retail or, yeah. And I was working for the tribal council when I became really mentally unwell. And I was in that Cranbrook Regional Hospital in the psychiatric unit. And my husband's busy looking after children, trying to work. And so nobody came to see me. But an elder from the Tanaha Nation, her name was Agnes McCoy. She's since gone on her spirit journey, but she came to the hospital every day for five days. And she would come into my room and I would sort of ignore her. I was, I don't know, I was in a place of anger and I was just really unwell. But she would sit just quietly by my bed, sometimes for maybe half an hour or so. And she would just sit there. And she did that every day. She'd come back the next day and she'd just sit. And she'd come back the next day and she'd just sit. Um, and she was probably the only person in that time frame that entered my room and didn't inundate me with questions and want me to talk about what was going on with me. And so it sort of became a moment of comfort to just have someone physically present, feeling like they cared, like that she didn't have to be there. And she wasn't expecting anything of me. She was just providing her presence. And I realized that I started to really crave, when is she going to get here today? You know? And on about the fifth day, she came in my room and she said, get your shoes. I talked to the nurse and they said, I can take you away from here for a couple of hours. We're going out. And so I put my shoes on and she took me out of Cranbrook and we drove through her community of St. Mary's, Akam. And we went past the St. Eugene Mission Residential School, which was just starting to be renovated for the purpose of a hotel and casino they were developing. We went past all of the houses along the river and along the St. Mary's River. And we got to like this meadow and there was a large tree there. 
and we got out of the van and we started to walk through that meadow and she stopped me and she said, I want you to listen very carefully. She said, when I come here, I can hear the laughter of the children because this is where we used to gather to play and to be together before I ever had to go to residential school. And so she said it was a really special and spiritual place. And then she asked me what it is that I wanted. What did I need? And I answered her the same way I had been answering the nurses and the psychiatrists for a couple of weeks. I said to her, I just want to be me. And she didn't push. Like she didn't question what that was. She just looked at me and she said, I totally understand. It's really hard to go through the world as a Native woman. I think you need to scream. And I said, I can't, I can't do that. And to me, that thought of standing in this meadow and screaming was, you know, that was, it was unprofessional. It wasn't civilized. It was pointless. But she really pushed me. She said, no, you really need to do it, Denise. Just scream. And so I did. I started to scream. And I might cry telling you about it, but it was the most profound sound I had ever heard. It was, it was like a, a trapped animal. It didn't even sound human to me. And it just kept cutting and coming and coming. And pretty soon, I don't even know how long I screamed for, but all of a sudden these dogs came, these two large dogs. And they started to circle my feet and they were crying. They were like, and she said to me, she said, they heard you and they've come to bring you comfort. And I felt my knees and those dogs, I don't even know where they came from. We were quite a ways from like the nearest house. Like I'm thinking a couple kilometers, but they started to lick the tears from my face and they whimpered and they cried and they nuzzled my neck. And I was now just this sobbing heap. And then she walked up to me. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, I want you to look to the sky. And I looked up and there was a bald eagle circling over the river and the meadow. And she said, creator has sent him here to you to take your pain. And it's okay to be angry. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to be mad. And you don't have to hold that by yourself. Creator is going to take that from you. And that eagle is going to carry it. And you don't have to have that as a burden in your life. And she stood me up. And we walked a little further down along the river. And there was pussy willow trees. There were willow trees that were just budding with the pussy willows. And she, she picked a branch from the tree and she handed it to me. And she said, this pussy willow doesn't just re represent spring. This pussy willow represents the birth of your new life. And you can have this as a reminder that you were born today. And going forward, things are going to be different. It was the most amazing experience of my lifetime. 
that was like 30 years ago. <laughs> That's how long ago it was, you know, but I can still feel it today. Like it was happening in the moment. And it absolutely changed my attitude and it changed how I was going to approach things. So I don't want to give the impression that I didn't leave that psychiatric unit weeks later with a significant diagnosis of mental illness, that I was on lithium and risperidone and Seroquel. And I mean, the list just kind of goes on. And after being on those things for a year, I started to develop tremors and shakes. And yeah, I mean, it was a difficult journey. And I can say now, 30 years later, that I believe that I live a good life in recovery because I've been able to blend Western medicine and their knowledge with my cultural experience that Agnes helped to launch for me. And it's been amazing to be able to walk in that balance. And now, probably for the last 20 or 25 years, I've made my life's work about sharing that experience and knowledge with others in Métis and First Nations Inuit communities and with healthcare systems who need to understand that when they're providing treatment to us as all Indigenous people of Canada, that they need to be doing that from a culturally safe and respectful place. So it was my first time in a psychiatric unit. It was a significant diagnosis, but it was the birth of my identity as an Indigenous woman who could walk with pride and comfort. Have you since taken anyone else to a field to scream to help them yeah. be reborn? <laughs> yes, actually. You know, I think a lot of the time when we're working on our mental, emotional, and spiritual health, we tend to practice mindfulness where it's about sitting in the quiet and it's about listening to our body and our minds and our spirit. But I really learned from her that sometimes you need to push through that in other ways to get to that place. And maybe it's because of my bipolar mind racing 200 things at a time at all times. I call it internal zooming. Um, it's very hard for me to be mindful in a quiet way. And now I know that it can be safe to scream, that there's no, there's no harm or risk in, in that. So it's about knowing what's right to do in the moment and not being afraid. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to ask about the term blood memory yeah. and, and, and how it affects a generation of healing and your perspective on that. Sure. So blood memory is something elders have talked about for a long time. It's about being able to feel or understand things in your, in your blood, in your bones. I think some people would describe it as that ability to connect spirit. Others might describe it as being like, deja vu, you know, that feeling that you've been there before. And so I think we have a long history in our community of understanding that blood memory exists. But in the last 10 years, science has been really focusing on something called epigenetics. 
And so I'm not a scientist or a researcher, but I'll, I'll share what has come to be my understanding of that. So we all have a DNA chain, right? That's how we are developed at a cellular level. And that DNA has markers that's handed down from generation to generation. So it wouldn't be uncommon for anyone to visit their doctor and they're going to ask, does your family have a history of heart disease? Does your family have a history of diabetes? And, and we will accept that question and we will know that that's about us potentially having a hereditary factor, right? So that's in our DNA chain, right? That's blood memory. That's an example of blood memory. But what we also know now is that that DNA chain exists in an environment that helps it pass messages from one cell to the next. That's called epigenetics. And so you have to kind of envision them as being like little post-it notes that tell your DNA where it needs to go, what it needs to do. And so that saying things like you are what you eat that's true because that's one of your post-it notes, right? That's, that's part of the epigenetics that supports your DNA. And so diet and exercise really do matter. And epigenetics has been looking at the impact of the environment on our DNA chain from a perspective of intergenerational trauma. So Dr. Amy Bombay, an Anishinaabe researcher, has done a lot of work around the impact of residential school and intergenerational trauma in the term of epigenetics, the impact to our blood memory. And so for me, even that screaming that happened was writing a post-it note for me. It, it was releasing something in the environment of, of my DNA. And so I really try and talk, especially to our young people, about how, because so many of us We've been impacted by our own history and we maybe are not growing up in a way where we feel really connected to our Métis culture or our understanding of what it is to be Métis. But we don't have to be afraid of that because it's in our blood memory. And so it's about sitting in a place where you're trying on the opportunity to explore your culture through connection to community and just seeing what resonates with you. Is there something about the fiddle music that, you know, makes you tap your toes and feel comfortable? Is there something about being around other Métis people that makes you feel like you belong? Maybe it's the drum that resonates with your heart. Uh, um, I think that that is all blood memory in action. And it's a, what allowed me to feel like I had the power to heal and to have recovery. Because that Métis community in the Kootenays back in the early to mid-90s, they became my family. And so them and many members of the Tanaha Nation who welcomed me into their territory, they just set me on a path of starting to be able to live in a way that I felt the world saw me from the outside. That's amazing. Now, youth that are listening and youth that get shared this, what would you tell them right now to assist them as they heal and rebuild our nation? I would really tell them that culture is not static. Culture is something that continually changes and grows and that we can be part of many cultures at one time. So, for example, if I am a young person entering university, 
the being a university student comes with its own culture. It's going to sort of shape the way that I have discussions and dialogue with people and formulate thoughts and challenge my ways of thinking against the way other people think, for example. That's a culture. And it might only exist in my lifetime in that time frame that I'm in university. But there will be pieces of that lived experience of being a university student that will follow me forevermore going forward. And so I think for me, exploring our history as Métis people, being connected to the current community of Métis Nation of BC and the chartered communities across the province and other ways of connecting with our families and our Métis citizens, that's about building our cultural post-it notes that will be influencing our DNA, which will ultimately influence our future generations. And I want our young people to know that there is no right or wrong way to be Métis. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you can only fiddle, but you can't drum. Or that sweat lodge is only for First Nations and not for Métis. Because we are truly a blending of both the European and the First Nations culture of this land. We are one of the original peoples of Canada. And our blood memory will tell us what feels right. And so even today, I'm wearing my sash like a scarf. I learned that from the youth of the Métis Nation of BC. Being with them at revitalizing our culture camps and other activities and seeing them wear their sashes with pride like a scarf. Because I was kind of being old school. I was like, oh, the girls wear it across their chests and the men wear it around their waists and Even that's changed for me as an elder. I'm thinking that's not very gender fluid. And so now when I'm in a sashing ceremony, I ask the young person in front of me, how would you like me to sash you? How would you like to wear it? And if they told me like a scarf, I would be just as honored to put that scarf or the sash around them in that way. Because our culture is fluid and there is no right or wrong way to be Métis and express our indigeneity. Denise, that's amazing. And and for those that are interested, how does one who is Métis get sashed? Oh, you know, I think it happens in a lot of ways. It would be hard to be sashed as a Métis citizen if you're not engaged in being part of the community, for sure. So being connected in some way to the larger Métis citizenship is definitely a pathway to having that happen. But you might be sashed because you're participating in a youth culture camp. Or you might be sashed because someone is recognizing your educational achievement. In Kamloops, I work closely with Lemichif Optimastawak, Family and Community Services. And we don't just sash, but we also honor shawl our moms, our young moms, for the role that they're going to play in their baby and children's lives. So there's lots of ways in which to be honored right now. Thank you for listening is a report about the Métis experiences of violence and murdered and missing Métis women and girls that's just come out. And we talked about the Women Warrior Sash, which is a vision of the Métis youth of British Columbia who said our Métis women and girls are too invisible in this campaign and this acknowledgement of the women who are missing and murdered across Canada. And we want 
a sash that moves them from being invisible to visible. So sashes come in many forms, many patterns, many colors, and there are many pathways. But I think it's about being engaged in your community and being prepared to give of yourself. It's great. So we started off talking about healing and what that word means. And I need to know medicine and harvesting medicine. What are your favorite medicines to harvest? So I do smudge, but it's not one of the four sacred medicines that I think of when it comes to healing and medicine. For me, my healing in medicine is blueberries. When I was a young girl, my family went out blueberry picking every year at the end of August. It's an actually ongoing family joke. My my little brother has his birthday at the end of August. It's an ongoing family joke that he doesn't get to have a birthday party because it's blueberry picking time. There's just things that need to be done. And I think when you're five or six, peanut butter used to come in a big can, Empress peanut butter, and sometimes it would be a nabob coffee can. But my grandfather would make you a blueberry picking pail of your own with a coat hanger handle. And so you'd have your little peanut butter or coffee can. And you'd have a responsibility, even at five or six years old, to fill that can with your blueberries. And so we went in mass the blueberry field of Northern Alberta. And when I say in mass, I'm talking aunties and uncles and grandparents and cousins. And it was a place where you sang songs. I know now that was to keep the bears away, but I didn't realize that as a child. And so when I think about blueberries, it's not just about the vitamin C and they have a a nutritional value, but it feeds my spirit because it reminds me of ways in which my family connected And it reminds me of the importance of being together. It reminds me of the peacefulness that comes from being on the land. And it reminds me that there is a great joy in sharing food and being together. So to me, that's healing and blueberries are my favorite medicine. That's awesome. Now, Denise, what can you tell us about the Métis traditional healing practices? Mm. Well... I think from what I can remember and from what I know, we're actually a lot more connected to the land than maybe people think about. And so um, there's lots of ways in which we use what Mother Nature provides to us to heal. So one of the things that I carry, I was given me by one of the other, this is a piece of diamond willow. It's like a piece of fungus that grows on the diamond willow. This is really good for headaches, for example. So you can just burn it, the tip of it, and then you inhale that little bit of smoke that comes from that and it will help your headache go away. So there's just, Mother Earth is bountiful. And I don't think there's a whole lot of modern produced medication on the market that didn't start in a formulary related to plants somewhere in the world. So even every time you take an aspirin, it may be synthetically produced now, but its origin is really based on on our knowledge. And so I think Métis people were very much relied on, especially by the fur traders and the settlers who came to our country to explore and expand and capitalize on the fur trade. Without our knowledge of the local medicine, they wouldn't have likely survived our environment. So our history with healing medicines starts from the moment of our conception as Métis people. That's great. Thanks, Denise. Is there anything else you want to share with listeners? 
No, I guess if I was, well, maybe there is. It's take the opportunity to explore where you come from. Take the opportunity to envision where you'd like to go. And create an environment for your blood memory that's going to be impactful for generations to come. Yeah, we have a history from the early 1700s that we can be proud of. And I'm just really happy to see so many young people whose parents or grandparents perhaps were impacted by assimilation and the challenges of our of being Métis over the years, stepping forward and saying, I want to know more about what this means and I want to embrace it in my life. I'm so excited by that. It, uh, yeah, it, it makes me feel proud and, and just happy that we can now live our lives in a way that our grandparents and our great grandparents were maybe denied the opportunity to. So, yeah. Some great, inspiring thoughts there. Thank you, Denise. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a sash, wear it proudly and wear it how you like it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it is the, one of the most identifying markers of who we are. And mainstream society is now starting to recognize and know when they see a sash that it symbolizes the Métis people. And we have to remember that they were once, they had a utilitarian purpose, right? So as beautiful as they are, I'm not even going to be upset if you decide to use it to bundle your firewood into the house or portage your canoe, because that was their purpose to begin with. So don't feel that you have to display it in one way or another. Do what resonates for you and makes you feel good. That's great. I actually... I got from the Métis BC office. I got a sash here. So I have oh, a sash. I also have a sash that they made into a nice kind of carry-all bag. You can use it to put your items in. And then there's a, there's a smaller version of it here. And then here's another sash, which again, is, is just a bit of a wider sash. So lots yeah. of sash options for people today. <laughs> Very much so. Very much so. And I I wish I knew more about all the different histories. I had a chance to go with a group of Métis youth from BC to Voyager Days in Winnipeg at St. Boniface just before COVID struck. It was February. It was cold. Um, and they had so many different sashes on display. And, and they had a, a history of the different family connections and Métis figures who wore certain colors and certain kinds. So I think this this one here, this one is the Louis Riel Coventry sash. The sash is handmade on a loom using wool. It's designed as a replica of the Coventry style sash which Louis Riel wore circa 1860. That's there you go. One. See? Versus exactly. versus this one is a different look here. So lots yeah, of I options. I think the red one is more what we would call the Assiniboia sash. Yeah, and mine is actually, this was made specifically for Lemechif Optimastawak Family and Community Services here in Kamloops. And so all staff are, are sashed with this. And if we need to go to the courthouse with our families and children or wherever we might need to go, we wear these so that everyone present understands that they're part of the Métis community and they're important to us. 
Denise, this has been a real honor, a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Darian, for making it so easy. It was lovely to have a conversation with you today. Thanks for joining us this week. Denise, where can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about the work you do and be in touch? Oh, goodness. Well, certainly you can reach out to the Ministry of Youth at Métis Nation BC. They know how to find me, but I'm more than willing to share my personal email. And it is O-O-W-B as in Bob, W-A-W at telus.net. It's an acronym that my staff gave me over 25 years ago. So if you're worried about forgetting it, it's only one woman, but what a woman at telus.net. O-O-W-B-W-A-W. That is awesome. Oh, what a woman. Denise, thank you for being here today. And I look forward to uh, continuing to learn and uh, grow. I think I've, I've learned so much today from you. So thank you for sharing so much. Marcy. This has been the Métis Speaker Series podcast. I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to the Métis Nation of British Columbia for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis news at metispodcastseries.ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash lovelifeofficial, L-U-V-L-Y-F official, and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa Mitten. Thank you, Marcy, for listening.